This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Stackery. On today's episode, I speak with Lynn Langett about big data and serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 39. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Lynn Langett. Hi, Lynn. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. So you refer to yourself as a coding cloud architect. Uh, you're also an author and an instructor. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to lately? Sure. Uh, I run my own consulting company. I've done so for, oh, eight years now. And I work on various projects on the cloud. Um, most recently, I've been doing most of my work on GCP because that's what my customers are interested in. But I've done production work on AWS and Azure. Um, and I've actually done some POCs now on Alibaba Cloud. So one of the characteristics of me and my team is that we work on whichever clouds best serve our customers, which makes work really fun. Um, in terms of the work that we do, uh, it really depends on what the customer needs. Because I have this ability to work in multi-cloud, sometimes it's me working with C-levels or uh, senior technical people, helping them to make uh, technology choices, so uh, based on their particular vertical. But at other times, uh, I'll hire a team of subcontractors for a particular project, and we might build a POC. We might actually build all the way to MVP for a customer. And then occasionally, I take projects where I build all the way out. The longest one I've had over the past few years is I did a project for 14 months where we went from design uh, all the way out to product. And I worked every single day. I was embedded uh, with a developer team. So I do everything from design to coding to testing. It's a fun life. It sounds like it. Well, so so listen, I, I've been following you for a very long time, and I'm a, a huge fan of the work that, that you've done. Um, uh, I've watched some of your videos on uh, LinkedIn Learning and just been following along with some of this other stuff that you've done. And and, and really, like you, you said, a lot of what you have done has been around big data. And, and recently, you've been getting into, or you have gotten into, um, big data and serverless. And that's really what I'd love to talk to you about today, because I just find big data to be absolutely fascinating. And just the volume of data that we are collecting nowadays uh, is, is absolutely insane. It's overwhelming. Um, and I don't know if traditional systems um, or, or if especially smaller teams working on some of these specialty products have the capability or the resources to keep up with the amount of data that's coming in based off of sort of some of these traditional methods to do that. So um, so we can get into all of that. And I, I, I have a feeling this discussion will go all over the place, which is <laughs> awesome. Um, but maybe we could start just by sort of level setting the audience and uh, and just explaining what big data is or what I think maybe what you mean by big data. I, I can have a really simple explanation and it, it, where this I'll, I, I'll say the explanation and I'll tell you why. Um, so the explanation is data that doesn't function of a size, that doesn't function effectively in your SQL server or your Oracle server or your data warehouse. So your traditional systems. And the, the reason I say this is because that is my professional background. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for about 20 years now. 
And for the first five or so, uh, maybe seven, I was working in those systems. I've actually written three books on SQL Server data warehousing. I worked for Microsoft as a developer evangelist back in 2007 to, to 2011. And the consulting practice that I built initially was around optimization of relational database systems. Mm -hmm. So I was literally working on systems and figuring out, oh, this could be optimized. Let's optimize it. Oh, whoops. We have too much data now. What do we do? So when I left Microsoft in 2011 to launch my consultancy, I, I left because I was so fascinated by what was coming beyond these systems. Um, one of the impetus was, you know, the launching of Hadoop as an open source uh, project. And uh, literally when I left Microsoft, I went to New Jersey and I took a class with Hadoop developers, which was really throwing me in the deep end because I had come out of the Windows ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Of course, the class was on Linux, in Java, all coding. And um, I learned a lot that week. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. So so that's so that's maybe my question there. So big data is just this is this volume of data, this this immense amount of data that's coming in um, that I, I think, as you put it, that sort of these traditional systems like a SQL Server or even an Oracle can't handle or at least can't handle at a scale that would make the processing easy, right? So you mentioned Hadoop and there's other things like, you know, Redshift is now uh, a, a popular uh, choice for sort of data warehousing. And, you know, then you've got Snowflake and Tab uh, Tableau and some of these other things that I think that are products out there that are trying to find a way to analyze this data. But what is the problem with these traditional systems when it comes to this massive amount of data? Well, it goes to the um, CAP theorem, which is consistency, availability, and partitioning. This is sort of classic database, uh, uh, like what are the capabilities of a database? So, and it, it's really kind of common sense. A, a database can have two of the three, but not all three. Mm -hmm. So you can have um, basically uh, the ability for um, transactions, um, which is relational databases. Or you can have the ability to add partitions is really kind of to simplify it yeah. easily. Because if you think about it, when you're adding partitions, you're adding redundancy. Um, and so you trade, it's a trade-off, right? And so are you adding partitions for scalability? And so when adding partitions makes a relational database too slow, then what do you do? So what you then do is you partition the data in the database to SQL and no SQL. And again, I did a whole bunch of work back 2011, 2012, 2013. I worked with MongoDB. I worked with Redis. And uh, one of the um, sort of key, I don't know, books, I guess, would be seven databases in seven weeks. Um, and this tells, uh, it's, it's still a very valid book, even though it's many years old. It tells like how you do that progression and it really turned the light on for me. Because prior to that point, it was, oh, just scale out your SQL server, or scale out your Oracle server, which still would work. But these NoSQL databases were providing much more uh, economical alternatives. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm always trying to provide, you know, the best value to my customer. So if it wasn't a great value to like buy more, you know, uh, licenses for SQL server or for Oracle, rather you want to get a Mongo cluster up or a Redis cluster up, you could partition your data if that was possible, because there's always... There's cost to partitioning mm -hmm. your data and writing your application, sure. right? So, so I just found those trade-offs really, really fascinating. And of course, during that time, 
cloud was launched, led by AWS. Microsoft had an offering, but they didn't really understand the market until a little bit later. So Amazon had an offering and they first started, it was really interesting. They started by just lift and shift with RDS at a pass level by taking SQL Server and actually making it run effectively in the cloud. That was how I got started mm -hmm. because my customers wanted to lift and shift and maybe go to an enterprise edition and, and run it on cloud scale servers. And ironically, because they're kind of co-located, some former Microsoft employees who were kind of frustrated at that time with what Microsoft at that time was doing with SQL Server in the cloud went over to Amazon. And so I sort of notoriously, right after I left at SQL Pass Summit, um, presented on Amazon SQL Server RDS, um, and which Pass Summit is kind of a Microsoft-centered event. Yeah. And the Amazon people came over. And because of that, I kind of, to this day, have a pretty good relationship with the Amazon data services teams. <laughs> So then this idea of, of moving away from those systems, right? So we have, uh, you mentioned NoSQL so, uh, or NoSQL. So we have uh, DynamoDB in the uh, AWS ecosystem. You have Mongo. You have um, uh, Cassandra, some of these other things. And, and all of them, you know, maybe less so, I guess, with DynamoDB, but have some, you know, scaling problems sort of built into them. But, um, but this is something where I think you started looking at serverless tools to try to handle that big data. Now, is that things like data lakes and S3 or um, something like maybe BigQuery or CosmoDB? Like what, what, what tools are you moving to now to handle um, that scale of data? Well, you know, change comes slowly and change is usually induced by some sort of pain, right? And so uh, the, the, the pain in my case, in my customer's case was uh, through IoT data, because IoT data uh, increased the amount of data exponentially because the event-based data. So I had some customers, some of the big, big, you know, like the biggest appliance manufacturer in the United States, and customers I can't name, but you can guess who they are, right? And mm -hmm. this was maybe eight years ago, so it was still a while ago. They wanted to IoT enable their, you know, devices. And so suddenly, we, and again, to be very clear, the majority of the enterprise applications that I would work with would be would be SQL plus NoSQL yeah. because they would have a need for transaction. And again, that's really important because I saw a lot of startups go just directly to NoSQL and then they would call me and they would try to tune their transactional consistency of their Mongo and it would be a cluster and it would be a mess. And then we just pull that out and put in MySQL. This is the whole you know space was super interesting. So, so meanwhile, the cloud vendors are evolving and Amazon, of course, comes with DynamoDB. And I have to tell you that initially I was super resistant. I was like, you know, that's how do you even query that? And mm -hmm. how does that, you know, I, I actually did some time tests and blogged about this is like seven, eight years ago of, you know, you write a SQL query. Everybody knows how to do that. You write right. a Dynamo query. It takes, you know, 15 minutes because you have to research the query and how much is that in your dev time and mm -hmm. da, 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 So, um, so there, there was resistance, including me, the, um, the service on the cloud that really stunned me and still does is BigQuery mm -hmm. because BigQuery offered SQL querying, which I think it's extremely important when you're evaluating different kinds of database solutions to look at what is the ramp up time to understand how to get data in, how to take data out. Um, and the, the more different the query languages are, the more errors you're going to have too. And this right. is your data. Mm -hmm. So I've seen a lot of bad things where developers, uh, 
overestimated their abilities. Um, and because the query languages were at really idiosyncratic or esoteric for the NoSQL databases, it was all kinds of problems. But BigQuery's idea of, okay, you get around the scaling problem by using files. Mm-hmm. And you then just use SQL and you just pay for the time. I mean, I, I literally, I was I got goosebumps. I was stunned when BigQuery came out. I was stunned. I really got it from the beginning. And uh, I've written about it. I've used it. I, I, um, you know, I would often add it for customers as sort of a, you know, incremental rather than NoSQL. I called it, you know, kind of NoSQL going all the way back to SQL, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, um, you know, to this day, there's still a lot of people that you show them BigQuery and they just, they can't, they just don't believe it because you go to the query window, as you know, and you say, well, now it's more common since. There, Amazon has Athena and I don't mm-hmm. know, Azure has something like that. But, but um, you know, even two, three years ago, I was at a serverless conference and I was doing a talk on serverless um, SQL. And at the end, you know, I do live queries on BigQuery on terabytes and I explain yeah. how it just costs, you know, pennies. And there's, you know, as you obviously know, there's no server setup, there's no scaling, there's no clustering, there's no whatever. And, and, and people just wouldn't believe it. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, really? Really? <laughs> so I think it's really interesting that BigQuery, the biggest problem for a long time was that once you gave it to customers, what would happen is they would spend too much money, which means they loved the product. And it oh, was yeah. it was so interesting, you know, interacting with Google and saying, okay, I know you use this internally. And so you guys aren't you really used to like cost controls and stuff, but customers need to understand what they're going to be spending. So you mm-hmm. need to put cost estimates and cost caps and all that. And frankly, that's just been coming in the last couple of years for BigQuery. And I think that that really hindered adoption really a lot. Um, yeah. And it's interesting to see this pressure between cloud vendors because Google on some of their other services, like their VMs, they'll put the pricing. And um, now that's pushing Amazon right in the console. So yeah. when you're setting it up, you know, you can click and size it and you can, you know, you get a more CPUs or whatever, you can see how much it will be. And I noticed, cause I just did a refresh to one of my Amazon data courses for LinkedIn learning that Amazon is now putting this in the console. Yeah. And I think that's really great. I love that. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is a good criticism or is a is a common criticism of services that are pay as you go is this idea that you know you don't really know how much you're going to spend until you start using it and then you get all these benefits of of not paying for um, you know maintaining some level of, of of scale so that you have that availability but then if you do you know sort of start using it heavily then those, those prices go up and um, as someone who is deep into the AWS ecosystem I've used Athena quite a bit and when it first came out uh, and I first started using it I was very nervous thinking to myself like wow if you're searching through a terabyte of data and it's gonna cost you five dollars like how many times do you run these queries and so forth but um, one of the things that I found with that and I think it's very similar with BigQuery is that these are all very, very optimized the way that they search, right? So you you can limit them by date and you can limit them different ways. So you're not necessarily searching through, um, you know, terabytes and terabytes of data every time, um, especially if your uh, if your queries are optimized in the right way. Yes, but, but you have to know how to do that. So true. So what I have seen now that I'm working with customers with enormous amounts of data, um, this actually happened. It wasn't 
related to me showing them BigQuery, but this actually happened at one of these customers. They got very excited and they uh, got a BigQuery bill of $83,000 in one day. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now this customer, because they're one of the biggest users of GCP in the world, they have a relationship where you can kind of have, you know, this kind of thing can be forgiven occasionally. Um, but the greater point, and this is very uh, germane to serverless services in general, is that there is a sliding scale. Mm -hmm. So let's take Amazon. You know, Lambda basically costs you nothing until you're Spotify level, right? But what does cost you? Well, Dynamo costs you. Yes. Well, Athena costs you, right? And so it's an entirely new pricing model that I find my customers are just utterly confused by. And so part of my advisory is when customers are moving into the serverless platforms is they have to repurpose some of their team members to uh, work with uh, cost uh, estimates and cost management. And if they don't do that from the beginning, then they're not going to get the level of value from the serverless services that could be had. That is, it doesn't have to be a full-time role, but mm -hmm. it has to be a role. I can't tell you the number of times that, you know, I've had these dev teams. Oh, well, well we don't say the bill. We just, they call us if we go over a certain amount. And I said, you know, that's just irresponsible. Yes. You know, this, you know, in, in the old box software on prem days, you had licensing specialists. So what are these people doing now? Um, in fact, you know, again, I don't mean to be constantly plugging my courses here, but I try to make courses around needs in the industry. So I made a course called AWS Cost Control, and I often recommend it to students that reach out to me who maybe come from a finance background or come from, you mm -hmm. know, some other background that are moving into cloud computing because I say, you know, this is a skill area that I find not covered. And um, it really is... I think it really actually hurts the adoption of serverless, actually, because you sort of get the, oh, I got the shock Dynamo bill or I got the shock BigQuery bill, right? And, you know, again, this is just part of using the serverless services properly. Right. Yeah. And actually, you mentioned, you know, the, the cost, knowing how to use uh, BigQuery or, or Athena correctly to optimize for those costs. Um, the same thing is true with DynamoDB. I mean, I think a lot of people use DynamoDB in a way that makes it very, very expensive as opposed to um, doing, you know, storing data in different ways and having mm -hmm. the indexes optimized the right way and doing queries instead of scans and um, other ways that they can, uh, you know, that they can optimize that. Um, so, all right. So let's, let's talk a little bit about um, sort of where some of this big data is going because I think we've got some serverless solutions and, and I, I guess we could get into some of that a little bit more. Um, but I, I'm really interested in um, this sort of rapid increase in data. You mentioned IoT, um, but you're seeing a really, really big growth in data in a different sort of industry now. Can you explain that a bit? Sure. Um, about three years ago now, um, I had a couple of things in my life that changed my professional life. Uh, the first was um, my then 17-year-old daughter went to Stanford summer program, and she was at that time interested in bioinformatics. And so she got, you know, enrolled in regular, you know, level, Stanford level classes, and she was doing some bioinformatics. And I was, um, you know thinking, oh, the data, I'm really interested. I've heard this is a lot of data. And she came home and she said, mom, these people don't use the cloud. And I said, what? What? And I said, what? Aren't you using Docker? Aren't you? No, no. We just, we have to make tiny data sets on our laptop or we have to SSH into the mainframe. And 
I was like, are you, are you joking? This is Stanford, right? So I was shocked. So that was the first thing. The second thing was um, a very close friend of mine got breast cancer. And um, because of some other work I had done in um, the bioinformatics community in San Diego, I knew there were lots of immunotherapies that were becoming available. And uh, she was not able at that time to uh, get her tumor sequenced or even participate. Um, and she had a very, I would almost call it dehumanizing course of treatment. And um, she recovered. She completely recovered. But she, it was just unnecessarily horrific. And at that same time, the third thing, Google came to me and said, um, as a Google uh, partner, we have this um, interesting uh, data challenge with a bioinformatics company. They are really a group. They are really interested in using GCP and starting to move their on-premise uh, methods for research into the cloud. Can you work with them to use you know, Docker and some of the services? And um, I said, yes. I said, yes, I can. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And I had so much to learn. And I found that um, the group is it's called the Galaxy Project. It's a, a consortium mostly based in Europe that is a that does a genomic analysis workflows for um, research that will um, discover immunotherapies. Um, uh, they had a conference in Australia and had some personal interest in Australia at the time. So I called Google and I said, can I go? And um, so, you know, I went from, this is interesting to presenting at an international conference <laughs> <laughs> and being the only non PhD there, which was, Oh my gosh, it was intimidating, but I did get it to work because, you mm -hmm. know, I do have the DevOps sort of chops and team. Right. Um, and so I, you know, a live dockered up a little galaxy cluster on GCP, which was, you know, a kind of a cool feat because at that time there were no GCP data centers in Australia. So mm -hmm. props to GCP. I was running it out of Singapore <laughs> <laughs> and I did it live. And, um, you know, and then I participated. I tried to like go into the world of the bioinformatics people. I participated in a five day training on the tool. Um, and I, I told them why I was there. I just was honest. You know, one of the things that I do on all the crazy stuff I do in my career when I go kind of out there at the end of the the the, uh, the ladder or whatever, I always... I always say default to honest. So I just, I just tell people, I tell the story of my friend, Terry, and I tell them why I'm here. And I tell them, I, you know, I'm, I'm a you know, new student in bioinformatics and I'm going to watch the Illumina sequencing videos at night. And I'm going to try to make a contribution to what we're doing, but I'm a new student. Well, I think it's, I think it's amazing when, when, um, you know, especially the, the fact that you had this opportunity to use your, use your powers for good. Um, and I think, uh, and, and, and so I want to get into exactly the scale of bioinformatics because this is something that I didn't even realize it was this big until you and I started talking earlier. Um, uh, you know, I, I was sort of like, yeah, hey, I know that's a lot of big data, like genomics, you know, that kind of stuff. That's, that's big data. But I did some research on this and, uh, you know, I found this article about, you know, this this system was trying to do uh, RNA sequencing and there was something like 640 million reads that they had to do. Um, and it used to take, I think, 29 hours for this to work. Um, and this is where serverless comes in because they took Lambda functions and they were able to optimize this down to where it used to take 29 hours. Now it takes 18 minutes and it cost them $2.82 to do that. Yes. Speaking of serverless and genomic scale data, which is really a superset of big data, 
Continuing my story of Australia, this is how I moved into serverless genomic solutions or serverless solutions for genomic analysis. Uh, at that conference where I presented, there were some researchers from the equivalent of the National Science Foundation of Australia. It's called CSIRO, the Commonwealth for Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. And they had, so interesting, they had this uh, burstable search problem, genomic scale, mm -hmm. to find where the edit points in a, a genomic sample would be. And the edit points would be for CRISPR-Cas9 editing so that you can then try to develop immunotherapies. So you want to have a fast feedback loop so you can go, okay, I could cut here, I could cut here. And the reason you have to have that is because when we think of DNA, when we non-biologists think of it, we think of it as like 3 billion letters all in line, like a big road, like a straight road. Mm -hmm. But it is not. DNA is coiled and curled and clumped. And um, so just logically, if it's all smushed together, it's hard to find the precise cut point. Now there's more scientific properties than just smushed together. <laughs> but mm -hmm. that's basically, there are a set of properties that help to determine optimal cut points. So anyway, and so these guys in Australia, they went to an AWS summit in Sydney and they saw the sort of classic serverless pattern for mm -hmm. um, burstable uh, websites. So they saw, you know, S3 with Dynamo um, and they saw Lambda with API Gateway. And they said, you know what? We, we're running out of room on our um, shared uh, you know, on-prem cluster. Let's just try this. Let's just try mm -hmm. to build something. And they did. And uh, it was published by Jeff Barr as one of the first um, all-serverless genomic uh, applications. And the application is called GTScan2. Um, and it's all it's on Jeff Barr's blog, and we can put the link in here. And it's just a classic architecture. And they built it really fast, um, and it was up and running. So I met them in uh, the conference and it, the conference is in Melbourne and the, they were there in Sydney and I was going to Sydney for something else. And I said, can I just come and talk to you about this? And they're very smart researchers. They researched me and they said, yes, you can come and help us with <laughs> a challenge we have on this. You're going to get, get here for free. Right. And so um, this was a couple of years ago now, like three years ago, it's kind of in the beginning of my journey to genomics and serverless. So um, we sat down and they said, it this runs, but sometimes it had bottlenecks. And I said, oh, what are you doing about your logs? And they said, because of course, serverless applications, it's all about the logs, right? Yep. And they said, well, we're not really familiar, you know, because they had never really done serverless before. And at that time, Amazon had just released GT Scan, like literally the month before. And so I looked like the complete hero because I said, let's take a look using GT Scan. Let's instrument this and bam, one day, one Lambda was causing 80% of the problem. They reroute it, fixed the bottleneck, and we published that too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Stackery. If you're building serverless applications on AWS, you have to give Stackery a look. They've built a next-generation SaaS platform that lets you securely develop, deliver, and manage serverless apps quickly, consistently, and at scale. It doesn't matter if you're building Greenfield or refactoring existing monoliths. Stackery streamlines and organizes your AWS SAM and CloudFormation templates, environment configurations, and credentials. This creates a development workflow that not only makes sure everything is properly configured 
circuited and instrumented, but also increases engineering velocity by 60x. They provide a CLI, VS Code plugin, and IDE extensions that let you locally debug any Lambda in any language or framework, even against your remote cloud resources. Stackery gives you architecture visualization, one-click access to tracing and logs, local debugging, and so much more, letting your team focus on app architectures and business logic, not YAML. Chase, Farah, Danielle, Tim, and the whole team over at Stackery are awesome people, and they've built an incredibly useful product. So for more information or to sign up for a free developer account, go to stackery.io. That's S-T-A-C-K-E-R-Y.io. So, so that's one of the things, though, I think that's really interesting about, again, moving from this on-prem. You said they're running out of space in their on-prem solution. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the problem with all on-prem solutions is eventually either you're going to keep buying more hardware, buying more hardware, or you're going to run out of space. Um, and, uh, or you're going to run out of compute power, which is, which is another thing, which is why some of, you know, you see some of these examples of, uh, you know, Hadoop jobs running for 500 hours to try to process some of this stuff. Um, so that's another limitation, I think, that um, that serverless overcomes uh, when it comes to data at this scale is for small teams, especially research teams that don't have huge budgets that can't run, um, you know, massive clusters by themselves. And even if they could, um, would still have to wait hours and hours and hours and hours to, to, to get feedback on uh, on the work that they're doing. So how does serverless and the cost reduction help? you know, sort of these smaller research teams? Well, again, continuing on working with this team because they were a really small team at that time. They've subsequently got more people and stuff. They, they said, okay, great. Good job, Coding Cloud Architect. We have another challenge for you. <laughs> and it was, it, was a, it was a big challenge um, given my skill level at the time. Um, and it was one of those 500-hour problems. They had written a customized machine learning library for analysis of genomic variants or differences between, you know, in the diseased sample versus the, the reference. And uh, it's called Variant Spark. They've written it in Scala to um, run on their uh, internal Hadoop cl Spark cluster. And again, they had to wait for time on the cluster. And then it, it literally did take up to 500 hours. This is a 500-hour problem. And they said, can't you do something on the cloud, Right. Okay, here's the tricky part. The computation was machine learning and stateful. Mm -hmm. So, and they were really new to cloud and they had a really small team. At that time, they had no DevOps people. So exactly the thing you're talking about. So one of the things that was really interesting because it was very much a process and it ended up because I didn't do it full time and you know it, we, we solved it. We got it down to 10 minutes with serverless. Um, but... The process is the key. I actually wrote this up on medium.com. There's a series of three articles. So the first step in the process was, you know, they hadn't even used Docker like at all. Mm -hmm. And so what we did first is we didn't even look at variant spark because it was too complex and machine learning and probabilistic. We took a bioinformatics tool that is um, deterministic. It really doesn't matter. It's called blast, which is binary local alignment sequence or something like that. It mm -hmm. basically just is the first level of analysis and it's a single like uh, executable. And we just put that in a Docker container so they could have one input, a process and one output and see how that scales um, because, and then do that on-prem and then do that on the cloud because mm -hmm. you have to have this ladder to learn. This is a, a, again, a really common situation I find with customers moving to serverless. 
that have uh, uh, experience, you know, in, in sort of traditional enterprise, you know, VMs or on-prem, you know, clusters or whatever, it's really hard to go directly, really, really hard, even mm -hmm. for new implementations. So then the next level we did is we, um, we did EMR um, just almost as a lift and shift so that they could learn uh, best practices like cloud formation rather than clicking on the console. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and then what was interesting, this was a Spark-based uh, library. Um, conveniently, uh, the Spark team, the open source group, uh, made Kubernetes a uh, potential controller rather than Yarn. So I said, oh, here we go. We can now make a data lake. Mm -hmm. So so the progression was we went from on-prem 500 hours to EMR um, to learn cloud skills, basically. Um, and that is something that still a lot of the researchers use because it's simpler, right? You know, yeah. serverless is, isn't always the right answer. Um, if you just are going to, you know, just kick off a cloud formation template and run a small size test job on EMR, that's more familiar, right? You just click and you're done and it takes maybe an hour, right? And the the huge scale, which runs on the data lake. So the difference in the serverless aspect of the solution we built was not in the compute layer. Yeah, It was in the data layer. We got mm -hmm. rid of HDFS, we got rid of, we put all of the data in S3. And then the compute layer was a, uh, a Docker. So we created, a, we Dockerized um, a Spark mm -hmm. for EKS. And I think we were actually one of the first groups in the world to do it. And we published on it. It's all on GitHub. Um, and Amazon actually supported part of that research because of what we were doing. So thanks to Amazon for that. <laughs> um, and, and so what, what the CSIRO teams will do is they'll use the, the Kubernetes for, you know, the really huge scale, right. And when people are more comfortable. So this idea of having like a menu for, um, this particular group, this vertical, mm -hmm. um, where they, they sort of start with something that's more familiar and then they move to the serverless level. It worked in this particular case. Yeah. And that, so that's interesting because you, you, you mentioned, and obviously you're, you're, you're big into education. Uh, you mentioned sort of learning how to do some of this stuff and that progression. Um, so obviously there's a lot of tools and there's a lot of things you need to do with serverless that aren't quite as straightforward maybe as the, the, uh, uh, I guess the traditional sort of, like you said, the EMR approach, for example. Um, but so maybe in your opinion, what's the correct level of abstraction then for some of these teams to work with with serverless? Because I think right now it's very much so pick and choose all the little things you want, configure them, turn all the knobs, tweak all the dials and things like that. But is there another level of, of abstraction above that that might make it easier for some of these smaller teams to start with serverless? Yeah, it's interesting. So I've subsequently um, started working with uh, another bioinformatics client, and quite a large one. Um, it's the Broad Institute at MIT and Harvard. And they are in, in some ways kind of like a bioinformatics incubator. They mm -hmm. have 5,000 researchers that have various labs and they have, you know, massive on-premise compute resources because they're well-funded. Um, but they, because of the volume of data, are starting to exceed those resources. So they have had a multi-year um, cloud enablement project, which includes working directly with services, whether it's AWS, GCP, or whatever, but they have been uh, collaborating with uh, uh, Alphabet, which is spun, spun off from Google. That's yeah. actually the Verily group. And they have created a higher level abstraction, almost a SaaS level, which is called uh, Terra.bio. So it's a website, basically. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
what it implements is not only this higher level GUI-based abstraction, but within the Broad and in collaborating with other um, researchers worldwide, all this stuff's open source. They have, for example, created a configuration language called WDL, which is workflow definition language, which is designed as a higher level abstraction over like a cloud formation or a Terraform yeah. because it allows configuration of the execution environment. So, you know, the VMs or whatever, but it also enables configuration of the bioinformatics tools. So another uh, trend that's happening in the bioinformatics industry, and I saw this in other industries like ad tech and finance, previous mm -hmm. is as the volumes of data go up, there start to be, instead of just using scripts or, you know, uh, uh, code to, to manipulate data, there starts to be uh, tool repositories. So in the case of the Broad, they have this tool that uh, they have several tools, but their sort of big tool is called the GATK, the Genomic Analysis Toolkit. And it's a jar file that has like over a hundred common tools. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, one of the things that you might do in the analysis is you might look for duplicates in the, in the reads. And so they have a duplicates feature that you can then configure. So then working at this level, you're more configuring. So if we take it back to sort of uh, working generally with serverless um, versus um, not serverless, the amount of configuration code is growing and growing because with serverless, you have more parts and pieces. Sure. Mm -hmm. And when you go a higher level up, the configuration code is also, you know, extremely important. So it's, it becomes almost, I think almost this balance, maybe to the point where you're at the level of terror, you're not really even writing any application code. It's all configuration code. Yeah. So, you know, again, I get it. I'm, this is like a person, like, what is code? What is being technical? Sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I really strongly believe that, you know, DevOps and um, configuration code is code and needs to be checked in and needs to be source controlled and needs Absolutely. to be reviewed and all that kind of stuff. And I think, again, this is a big problem in serverless in general, that there's still this this lingering sort of bias that if it's not like Java or C++ or something like that, you know, YAML is not code. Well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's our podcast that we get to say, I think YAML's code. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. And actually, I think YAML in some cases and some of these uh, configurations are more difficult than writing code in some in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in some cases. Mm -hmm. So um, I definitely agree with you on that. So so that so I think all that's fascinating. And I and I find this sort of, um, uh, you know, this approach to big data moving to these things where, like you said, the, the cost can be dramatically reduced and whether the compute is on something like Kubernetes or um, even if, you know, like this other example, um, you know, where the RNA sequencing is using Lambda or or some other functions as a service, um, just this idea of, of being able to store this massive amount of data and being able to process this massive amount of data um, and use it for something that um, you know, isn't ad tech, right? I mean, it's great when we can serve up a nice personalized ad for somebody, but it's better if we can map the coronavirus and find, uh, uh, you know, some sort of a, a vaccine for it or, or something like that. Um, so maybe this is a question for you, because you had mentioned, you know, three years ago, you really had nothing to do um, with bioinformatics or genomics, and um, and you kind of got into this. Now you're working with um, the Brood Institute um, there, and, uh, and, and that's really fascinating. So is this a big? Is this going to be a big growth sector? You think? I mean, if people are saying, "Hey, I want to do good. Um, I want to. I want to. You know, I want to. I want to work in serverless. I want to work in big data." Um, this is sort of the next place for people to go, right? 
I think so. I mean, there's a couple things. First of all, even if you're not like motivated by the, the ethical concerns, it's the most data that I've ever worked with. Mm. Now, I, you know, in financial, it's sort of similar, but just to make an example, and this is a public information because the, the Broad publishes a lot of customer uh, stories. They are currently putting in, on average, 17 terabytes per day, per wow. day into the Google Cloud. Um, and, you know, it's just like, we all like hard problems, right? Like we're builders. Right. And so, you know, this is a really fun, hard problem. And um, the the patterns used to come for big data out of, you know, FinTech and ad tech. And, you know, I worked in those areas and I'm trying to apply some of those patterns. But I do think that the uh, most interesting place to work for a big data professional is uh, human health right now because yeah. of sequencing. One of the really cool things at the Broad, I had done a presentation there, which again, I was so intimidated to do on the work that I did in Australia because they, they wanted, they were interested in that reference example on AWS. Sure. And one of the researchers said, you know, have you seen some of our sequencing facilities? And I said, you know, I really haven't. And so she was kind enough to arrange a like three hour tour of one of their principal sequencing facilities, which used to be a, a beer um, plant, which cracked me up because in the big freezer, um, they have, you know, millions of human DNA samples mm -hmm. now, <laughs> which was the beer <laughs> storage. But but the, but the, the most impactful thing to me throughout this tour was she can, she, cause she'd worked there for five, six years. You know, she said, you know, we used to take, you know, really long periods of time to just sequence parts of the genome, the chromosomes or the exomes. But now, you know, they have rooms full of Illumina sequencers. They have Illumina people on site and they are just like constantly just processing, processing. And this has been within, you know, the last three to five years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now we're even getting um, testing like handheld sequencers, Right. And, and, you know, there's really just interesting aspects. When I was in uh, London last year, there's a new store, first one in the world called DNA Nudge. And um, what they do in the store is you spit in a tube and within one hour you get the results back. And it's, it, it, it's a sequence, but, and I wrote again, a medium article about yeah. this, but it, it's a very small subset. Again, you have 3 billion letters. So what they do in that store, it's almost like a regex on the genome. They go to certain spots and they say, okay, this is like, I'll just, one example is caffeine metabolism, which I happen to have high caffeine metabolism. So mm -hmm. they go to a one spot. It's not going to be all caffeine metabolism, but just a known spot. Do you have high, medium or low, right? So it's very much a subset. And then what they've done, it's a really interesting concept is they give you a wristband and they, um, it's like a Fitbit, so it yeah. tracks your activity. And they, um, you store the results in there. It's a little tiny chip. And then they partnered with a major grocery store. And based on those, the eight characteristics, when you go shopping, you can actually say red, green, or yellow for the, those characteristics and your activity. Oh wow! Yeah, it's super. That's it's That's super. Amazing. It's super interesting. So this idea of um, different kinds of sequencing, you know, not sequencing the whole genome, just sequencing parts of the genome. Mm -hmm. um, and very timely, the Broad is actually published on this. They're actually working on an improved coronavirus test, um, kind of uh, not the exact same principle, but kind yeah. of that idea um, so that the results can come back faster and be more accurate as 
the sequences are verified. Because again, one of the things that's been really fascinating to me about the coronavirus is, it, it, again, I haven't obviously been working with genomics for a long time, but the fact that the, you know, the Chinese sequenced the virus immediately, they released the information and, you know, there are open source repositories. One of them is Galaxy, the one, yeah. people that I've worked with that have actually published a workflow on GitHub and they've published a paper. And I mean, this is the dream. And of course it's all running on the cloud. And yeah. as they get new data coming in, they update the paper. So, you know, to enable citizen science, people working together faster because of the cloud. Yeah, no, that's, again, it's, it's fascinating to me. And I just, I think the, the, uh, the impact, um, just from a, from a health standpoint, and I don't know, is this, I mean, this is going to bring us to the point where we are able to find better cures for cancer or to test drugs mm-hmm. faster or, um, you know, to, to see how, um, you know, the changes in the environment. I mean, that's something I'm interested in as, in as well as this, you know, is what are the environmental impacts or the long-term environmental impacts of some of these things and being able to test changes in DNA and, and that kind of stuff based on environmental factors and all this stuff. I think it, it's just, it, it blows my mind. So, um, you know, certainly congrats for, for working on this stuff. And, and I think, this is this is where um you know we can maybe change the the conversation to you being recognized as an AWS data hero um because this is true hero stuff in my opinion that you're doing with data um so I, you know again thank you for for the work that you do um but you're not only a data hero you're also a Google developer expert um and I think you were maybe the first one right that was announced as a as a Google developer expert yep Yep, which is yep, pretty yep. fascinating. So, so for me, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this um, uh, this typical thing I think that most men with daughters say, um, but I'm going to put it out there anyways, and and uh, and just say this: I have two young daughters. I have an 11 year old and a 13 year old daughter. Um, one is really really great at math. The other one is very very interested in biology. Um, and uh, I really really hope that they stick with that STEM, um, you know, those STEM type subjects, and that they uh, they continue to to go in and pursue those things, um, you know, and that that hopefully this country and this world will will allow them to um, continue down those paths with as few barriers as possible. Um, but I think that that has been a major thing that um, that has has challenged women uh, in the STEM education or STEM uh, STEM jobs and things like that. And you're one of those people um, who I think is truly inspiring to like my daughters, for example, because you just broke through all that. And now you're, you're doing stuff that is, um, you know, that, that anybody can look up to. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, it's all about teams. Um, and, you know, one of the ways that I'm able to uh, accomplish uh, providing value to my customers is by um, working with, you know, like-minded people from all over the world. Uh, and one of the, you know, successes that I've had is this idea of learn, build, teach. Um, and again, if I wrote about it on Medium, because I always <laughs> like, you know, have to share. Sure. Um, but, but, and I encourage it in the people I work with. For example, I just had this young woman, I'll tell you this story because it just makes me so happy. She was one of my students from LinkedIn Learning and um, they write to me and they always ask me to mentor them. And I actually don't personally find mentoring valuable for me or the person. Now I know mm-hmm. for a lot of people they do, and that's great. But what I do is I um, consider having people work as interns. And the way that it works is they work with me remotely for a couple of one hour sessions, like 
three or four. And then if we both decide we want to continue, I'll actually hire them as subcontractors. And um, for this particular person, she came out of the finance industry. She's a grad student. Um, and she had a dream to be a cloud architect and, you know, this kind of stuff. And so we worked together for about six months. And uh, she's just left my internship because she got a full-time gig with Amazon. Wow. And I told her, I said, okay, you know, you tell me that, you know, what the way that I work has been helpful to you. Now it's your turn. You learn, build. Now it's your turn to teach. So I try to, um, you know, get that idea going with people. Um, because I think that it's never, it's not about an age or about, about a degree or whatever. It's about what you have done. And I, I think that that applies even to younger people. You know, when I've worked with some people, even in uh, high school that have done hackathons, mm -hmm. if they build something, um, learn, build, teach, because what you're doing then is you're, you're giving back, but you're also establishing your competence. Um, because another severe problem we have in our industry is uh, bias in tech interviewing. I mean, I'll, I'll just say, because I think it's important for people here, I have failed many tech interviews, many. Um, and even with my experience, it's very disheartening because I don't have a CS degree. I'm self-taught. And the mm -hmm. interviews at the big companies test for one very small set of skills. They test for, you know, did you go to Stanford and take algorithms? And I didn't. And yes, you can spend hundreds of hours and memorize that just for the interview. And that might be okay for some people. But I just feel that the industry needs to grow up because we have all these very competent people that are technical. And I define technical as somebody who has a curiosity and an I always like to say, if, if when you're driving a car, you would like to open the engine and look inside, you're technical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> very, if, very good point. Yeah, yeah you're technical. Um, you know, and, and um, I don't interview. And I don't conduct interviews. Like I just, again, I wrote another Medium article about this. Yeah, I was yeah. talking to a, a founder in Berlin recently. And he was like, how do I get people? Everybody's failing our interview process. I said, that's because your interview process is crap. Exactly. I said, I said, you just go to hackathons and you work with people. It's all about working together. And then you understand, like, what does the person do when they get stuck? Do they Google the problem? Do they ask for help? Do they try to compute it in their head for 27 minutes and not talk to you? You know, like who is going to make the most contributions to your team? Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I think it's a I think it's a confidence thing as well. Um, I tend to find that people who know a lot of things um, tend to think they don't know a lot of things and people <laughs> who don't know a lot of things. They know everything, right? So, right, right. <laughs> or at least they think they right. do. Um, and so, and that's and that's actually one of the problems that I found. Um, you know, even when I, because I've interviewed for uh, several companies, or I've interviewed people for those companies. Um, and uh, I mean, even just you know, talking to people, um, you know, to be guests on this podcast. I mean, I I think I find this where uh, you have a you have a lot of women who. Um, and it's not it's not that they don't that they don't have the confidence i think themselves just i think they think that uh maybe they're they're not enough of a voice to to lend to the community um and again i can find men 
who have no idea what they're talking about that are willing to talk about anything. So, um, and, and, I, and I don't mean to criticize. I mean, all the guests on the show have been great, but there are a lot of people that I would love to hear from. And I think there are a lot of people that the uh, that the community and 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 the tech community needs to hear from. Um, and that and that that just the, the culture and 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 whatever else it is is just, of course, you know hundreds of years or thousands of years of history, um, suppress some of those voices. And that, I think, is a tragedy that um, that needs to be corrected. So when you have more people like you speaking out um, and it can inspire other people, and like you like you said, this idea of saying, look, um, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what college you went to. It doesn't matter if you went to college at all. It's, it's are you, you know, do they have the aptitude? Do you have that drive? Um, are you willing to put in those hours and learn that stuff? And then you get to that point where, you know, if you share those things, yeah, sometimes you get criticism, but I mean, I always found whenever I share something, I, I try really, really hard to make sure it's right. I do more research. I do. I dig in deeper. Um, and then when you start getting criticism or, um, you know, congratulations or whatever it is, uh, you get feedback and feedback is always good. It makes mm -hmm. you a better person. So I, I'll say this again. Thank you so much for everything that you do. And I really appreciate you being on the show um, in sharing all this stuff on big data. So um, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, how would they, how would they do that? Twitter is probably the best way. Um, I'm really uh, changing kind of my professional profile. For many years, I was an international speaker and I'm stopping travel for uh, personal reasons. Um, and just because it's a good time to stop travel. So I, I won't be doing any um, talks uh, uh, other than, you know, where I live near where I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota now, but I'm going to be writing a lot. So, awesome. um, yeah. Um, and then I have, of course, I have 30 courses on LinkedIn learning. So if you want to listen to me there, <laughs> I have lots, of, lots of courses and GitHub, um, you know, sure. again, learn, build, teach. Um, I, I, you know, I, whenever possible, when I learn something, when I'm building something for a customer, as long as I can make a generic version or whatever, I will, I will put it out on GitHub. Um, in particular, I have a course on GitHub called uh, GCP for bioinformatics where I took my LinkedIn learning course, GCP Essentials, um, which is an introductory course, and I just converted all the examples to bioinformatic data and bioinformatic examples. I would love to get more collaborators on that. You know, I would love more input on that. It's GitHub, so you can do pull requests or sure. whatever. Um, and the course is um, about 50 markdown pages. It's like a quick graph, basically. You know, what is the service? How, why would you use it? How do you use it? Um, focuses on the console. And then quick short screencasts, like five minute screencasts. So the idea is if you're a researcher, you can learn how to use the cloud with some, you know, some guardrails of understanding cost and everything um, just by going to this repository. And, you know, I want it to be useful. So I've gotten some feedback, but I would I would love to make that course even better. Awesome. And then uh, linlangit.com as well, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. And that's L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-G-I-T.com. That's right. Awesome. Well, thanks again. I will make sure that we get all this stuff into the show notes. Thank you so much. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Lynn Langett for being my guest this week, as well as to our sponsor, Stackery. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 39. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast apps. 
You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. Thank you.